Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church with your Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not made it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out from Eden to water the garden. That's where we began. That's where our story begins in Eden. And deep down inside, don't you kind of know that? I mean, I know, I know they teach us that, you know, our great-grandparents were salamanders, you know, and we kind of got here from, you know, it's like goo to you by way of the zoo, right? So you're here because of pure random chance, and we emerged from the primordial soup, and we meaninglessly clawed our way to the top of the food chain. I get that's what they teach us, but I just can't shake this feeling that I live in the aftermath of some great eviction, that I'm a refugee and an alien now, that I wasn't made for this that we were made for something more. Can you, you gotta feel that? Do you sense that? There was a time when you and I lived in glory. And it's weird that every generation, not just ours, but every generation longs for the past. And every generation longs for a simpler time a more noble time before the order turned into chaos. Why is that? When we make movies about that, we write books about it, we create paintings of places we've never been, but we know we belong. And it's true. Are seven billion people wrong in the instinct that they have that there's, there's somewhere, there was a time when a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, way back when, somewhere, things were different. And so in the Garden of Eden, we find Adam. What's he doing there? Well, in verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
And so right there, you see the first picture of how life was intended to be. He was put in the garden to work it and to keep it. And so the story we're going to look at today tells us a few things about men and women, about X and Y, manhood and womanhood, and our essential natures that lie therein. And so we're going to follow the scripture today and see where it leads. We're going to let it teach us and speak to us step by step. And so when we see like God puts the man in the garden to work it and to keep it, and it's kind of like the first clue of the intention and the design and the purpose. And so I would say to you that men in particular were made to take responsibility for the condition of the world around them. We here like to use the phrase, men were made to tend their fields. And we need to do that, and I've said this often, I didn't make this up, but I'll say it a lot of times in conversation, and you've probably heard me say it here, that men are like pickup trucks. We were designed to carry weight. We we run best when we're weighed down. My first, well, my second car was a 1992 black Toyota truck. I love that thing. Stick shift. And I had custom rims and I put a pop-up sunroof in there and a carpet kit and a cool stereo. I loved that truck. And so when I lived in Southern California, there was this, um, this one little street I'd have to go a lot, a lot called Topanga Canyon Boulevard. And it was a hill and there was a stoplight. And whenever it would rain, I would sit at the stoplight on the hill, my little stick shift. And when the light would turn green, I have to make a left turn. And my truck would fishtail, right? Because it's up on a grade and the, there's no weight in the back. And so when it wasn't weighed down, it would fishtail all over the road. No traction. When men don't take responsibility in life, they have no traction. When they have nothing to tend, nothing to watch over, they fishtail through life. This is why so many young men get in trouble. They aren't entrusted with anything. They haven't experienced the rush of being given real responsibility. It has really nothing to do with their age, per se. We know when we study World, uh, World Wars I and World War II, we know a lot of our heroes of the greatest generation were only 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. When you were older than that, you were considered old. And these young men who had responsibility over other young men. There was this female comedian I heard years back who said, you know, guys, do you know why we women like a man in uniform? You know why we think it's sexy? Because, you know, men, they'll see like a woman in lingerie and they're like, oh, she's really, you know, beautiful and she's dancing and everything. And then you think that's sexy. Guys, we think a man in uniform is sexy. And you know why? Because he's in uniform, it shows that he has a job. (laughs) We're like, yeah. (laughs) I always thought that was funny and profound at the same time. Well, there's a second aspect to this as well that that we see when we look at the man in the garden. It's in verse 19. It says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. 
And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Huge implications, by the way. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So it says, whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And I used to think about, you know, that was merely just about classification. And guys are kind of good at that, you know, like organizing things and classifying things. And guys, you know, like a bunch of dudes standing around at like a car show or something. And they're sitting there with their little beer, you know. And the one guy's like, what do you got under the hood there? Oh, that's a... Uh, 350 big block V8 with a blower and a four inch fan and I got posi traction and blah, blah, blah. You're right, and it's like, well, this one, the 1968, they didn't have that part, but in 1969, they started putting that in there and you know, and it's like, how do you know that? And it's just it's like, it's something about that detail that there's, you can, you can assume value, right? And so you, you name, and so this is what he's doing. And he used to think that was, that was what it was. Well, you know, a guy's name and all this stuff. And that's part of exercising dominion or ruling, you know, bringing things under control. And that's true, but it's deeper than that. Because whatever he called something, that was its name. Fathers. You named your children, and you're still naming them. Whatever you call them is who they are. If you say they're worthless, if you say they're foolish, or if you don't say anything, that's their name. That's their name. And the amount of young men and women who wander this planet fatherless, or with the words, the names their father gave them, still bouncing around in their head long after he's passed away, is staggering. When Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, the voice comes from heaven, his father, and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. My son turned 18 today. There's now three adults in our home. It's weird. And uh, I like to, when I introduce him to people, I pick up this phrase. I like to say, this is my beloved son, or I had some beloved's kind of weird. So I just say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I like to say that to people. And I, whether I embarrass him or not, I like to introduce him that way to people. Husbands, if you're constantly criticizing your wife and, and you're making her fit this impossible standard that you've come up with, that will be her name. Mrs. Can't Measure Up. Mrs. Never Good Enough. I heard an amazing quote by this guy named Brian Lortz who said, a husband's leadership tends to be worn on his wife's countenance. Whoo. Oh. Put that one in your pipe and smoke it. Think about that. So you gotta, if he's abusive, if he's harsh, if he's critical, that will be worn on her face and her demeanor, and you see that. You see it. But if her husband names her and praises her and calls her beautiful and brings peace and protection and stability to the home, she will glow. She will wear confidence and tranquility. 
100% of the time? No, not 100% of the time. Nothing that we're saying here is 100% of the time, but it is worn and woven into the fabric of how we are made and is generally true enough to be relied upon. All right? And so for Adam, here he is, and he's naming all the animals, and he's in this beautiful place of perfection, and in all this beauty, and basically the whole world is kind of like his garage, you know, it's like his workshop. Whatever he touches turns to gold. He doesn't fail at this point. God supplies him with everything that he needs, but even in all of his perfection, even in all of the rush that comes from mastery, you know, from being in charge. He realizes something is missing and something is wrong because it says for Adam there was not a helper fit for him. And in fact, in verse 18, it's very explicit. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And here is where we get the first little crack and the little light begins to shine through to illuminate the inside of why the woman. I mean, the Garden of Eden is great, but really it has just become the ultimate bachelor pad. That's all that it is at this point. It's a bachelor pad. I mean, he's got, you know, the, he's like little posters up on the wall and whatever, and you know, things are just kind of there and it's, there's no real true beauty to it yet, at least the kind of beauty that's about to arrive. And so, you know, there's no compliment, there's no reason. Don't get me wrong, he has a reason to live, of course. He just doesn't have a reason to comb his hair. Not yet. This is the reason, by the way, that the man was made first. Now, this always makes the ladies mad. Well, the guy was made first in the Bible, and they don't like that. And it makes the ladies mad. The Bible's anti-woman, misogynistic, and it contributes to the subjugation of women all throughout history. And then and this is, it's a massive misconception, and it's tragic because it's actually the exact opposite that is true. Contrary to popular belief, the account of the creation of the woman in the Bible is the best thing that ever happened to women. If women are abused and neglected and mistreated in society, it is not because of this story. It is because of the rejection of this story. It is because of the misinterpretation and misunderstanding of the story. That is why women would be rejected or women would be uh, subjugated because of a lack of understanding of what is really going on here. Because it is, it is precisely the fact that there isn't here yet the woman that makes her existence so much more meaningful to the world. And that is exactly what this story is driving at. That's what you get, that's the buildup. See, this is the crazy thing. The woman isn't revealed right away. The man is, all right, there's a guy, well, that's pretty simple, he's there working the garden, it's like, okay. And there's tension in the story. Where is she, right? You see, Adam is not given Eve until he first experiences life without her. And according to God, it's not good. And you wonder, had he, what would it have been like had he known her all along? Had she been created along with all the rest of the animals and the trees and the birds and him? Oh, hey, what's up? You know what I'm saying? Like, okay. 
But it, he, God waits, God waits. And he waits so Adam can see all that the world has to offer and he can experience even his own dominion and his own strength and all this greatness that he's got and this place of perfection that he's been created into and still there's something not quite right and that sets the stage. And so women, you need to know this story and you need to teach this story to your sons and your daughters and you need to treasure the story of how you came to arrive on this planet and we neglect this, you neglect this at your own peril because you need to know your story. You need to know where you came from and you need to know the things that are embedded deep inside of who you are. So God says, I will make a helper for him. A helper fit, or other translations say a suitable helper. Now again, this makes some women mad. They go, oh, I'm just a helper, huh? Right? Is that what you think I am, a helper? And so they get hung up on that too. So let's deal with that. Because the word helper is not demeaning at all. In fact, it is used oftentimes of God Almighty himself. In Psalms, it says, the Lord is my helper. Rescue me. But really, when we look at the word helper, suitable helper, what do we mean? It's a very difficult phrase in the Hebrew to translate. As when I was in seminary, we learned about it and talked about it, and I've kind of read stuff on it and kind of understand. Because like, this is kind of huge. If we know what God was trying to make and what he made, then we got we to understand like what, what was his intention here. So in suitable helper, it's this Hebrew phrase, and it's, it's pronounced ezer konegdo, and it actually is hard, difficult to translate, but the best way to say it is some kind of corresponding strength at the point of his weakness. That that's what that phrase actually means. That is strength at the point of his weakness. That's the one that's always stuck with me. There's, there's different nuances and different ways because it's kind of like you can dance around it, but it's hard to get to the exact, exact meaning of it, which kind of makes it beautiful, right? Because there's, it's not just cut and dry. There's different ways. There's different angles you can take. And so women were made to be the corresponding strength at the point of man's weakness, and like I said before, the word helper is used to describe God Almighty. In Psalm 33, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 70, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Doesn't sound very demeaning to me, if you ask me. The woman was created, in a sense, to rescue him. From what? From loneliness, from like, what am I doing? You know, that's, thanks God, this is great, but I can't see you. There's no one else like me on this, in this world. The woman was created in part to rescue him. It's certainly the language that's given here, and, but this happens all the time. Did you hear the story about the guy who volunteered to be the first head transplant patient? I'm not kidding. This guy, because this crazy doctor in Italy is like, I can do head transplants now. And this one guy's like, well, I'll do it, because he had like, you know, he had a really mangled, messed up body. So he's like, well, I might as well try this. I got nothing else to live for. And right before he was about to be the first head transplant patient, he backed out completely and said, no, I don't want to do it anymore. You know why? 
Well, according to the article that was written, it said because he fell in love. He fell in love. And so he falls in love and he says, no, I don't think I want to do that after all. You could say that she helped him get his head on straight. (laughs) She helped him keep his head. And that's, but guys tend to do that, right? It's like they fall in love. We're like, yeah, come to think of it. I don't think I want to take that chance anymore. I think, I think I'm just fine in my mangled, messed up body. If she's there and she loves me, I think I'm going to be okay. Isn't that awesome? It's beautiful. And it's a wonderful thing. Doesn't sound demeaning to me. And the whole concept is that she corresponds to him. That she is his complement. The greatest compliment. That's what she becomes. Now, does this mean that every woman has to get married to fulfill her calling in life? No, it doesn't mean that. But in all actuality, she can still play this role in the world in general. Just like every man should strive to take responsibility for something, whether he gets married or not, every woman has the opportunity to affirm strength and to inspire beauty, whether she gets married or not. That's somewhat secondary, but it's still central to our entire existence as human beings. And this is where we really start to tread on holy ground here. Here's what happens in the next part of our story. Verse 21, it says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, cue the music, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of a man. And you see it done in different font, or not different font, but different setup the way it is on the screen because it was intended to be poetry. Now, what is significant here? This is so important. The woman comes from the man. Now, again, our... There are people, I can't believe this, you know? How dare you? You're missing the point. You're missing the point. When the woman comes from the man, it is teaching, it is instruction, it is a lens to say, men, you are to treasure them because they are a part of you. You are to look out for them because they came from you. You are to value them because they are your own flesh. And the fact that the woman was made from the man means they are able to have a bond of intimacy and chemistry like no other. The brilliant theologian James Montgomery Boyce wrote a, wrote a fascinating commentary on Genesis. If you go to Amazon and type Boyce, B-O-I-C-E, Genesis, you could probably get it. And you know, it's a little heady, but it, it's actually very easy to read. And he's an amazingly brilliant guy, and he has all these wonderful insights into this story. But one of the points that he makes is he says, What is most like half the moon? Is it half an orange? Is it half of a basketball? He goes, No, what's most like half of the moon is the other half of the moon. And so there's this old book, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. And while that's helpful to some degree of understanding a lot of differences that we might have, the reality is is that we're both from Earth. We both live on this planet. 
and started in a garden and she is from him. There is nothing more like a man than a woman. There is nothing more like a woman than a man. Meaning this idea that there are these, in, in, um, we're incapable of crossing these barriers or I'm never gonna understand her. And there's, you know, obviously some things that are always mysterious about you ladies that we'll never quite get. But that keeps us humble, you know. But the possibility of intimacy is built in and absolutely taught here because she comes from him. And so any thought of abusing or subjugation or treating as a second-class citizen only only degrades you as a man. It only makes you less of a man. It only degrades you in terms of everyone else's opinion of you because you don't know how to take care of basically yourself. And so this is why when a man falls in love with a woman, part of that has to do with he sees this reflection of himself. Not that he wants a female version of himself because that's kind of creepy and weird, Um, but, but he wants someone who resonates with his soul, right? And she becomes that answer to that loneliness. And she stares back at him and, 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 and in his own way, that man will kind of sing out the song that Adam sings that says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's like an expression of joy. Where did you come from? How did you get here? He goes to sleep and he wakes up. And, whew, you know? And I would think that if it's the very first woman that was ever made, it's like, good job, God, right? And we don't have clothes yet, right? So he's waking up, and he's like, am I, am I really awake? Right? <laughs> I am, and so he does a little jig, right? Because it's like, no way! And so this is a very common reaction of a man who falls in love. He's like, man, where are you? Oh, finally, at last. And you, and you see this like expressed in endless lines of poetry and sappy songs and expressions of wonder and inspiration. My favorite lyricist, Bill Maloney, of the, of the vigilantes of love, the old band, kind of a, the, best, the best band you'd never heard of. He sings about the journey of a broken man and he writes these lyrics. He says, I bought a one-way ticket to nowhere on a ship called Lost at Sea. It was there I found my courage, and she was sleeping next to me. John Mayer, a little more popular. Boys you can break, you find out how much they can take. Boys will be strong, a boy soldier on, but boys would be gone without warmth from a woman's good, good heart. This other guy from the 90s, kind of independent guy, Ellis Paul. She wants the last word, the last dance. She thinks it's absurd when you believe in second chances. You're a lost cause, yet here she is. And that is the mystery. Here she is. These are contemporary echoes of the original song. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones, what are you doing here? How did you get here? I was alone and pathetic in my bachelor pad garden of Eden, and you're here. 
I remember I was standing there in my tux, and they opened the back doors, and I saw my bride. And I had the reaction that a lot of grooms have because I've done a lot of weddings, and I'm right next to them, and sometimes the audience can see it, and sometimes they can't. But it's more common than not that when the groom sees his bride, he will become overcome with emotion that he did not expect. You know, a lot of guys are like, yeah, I keep it together. I don't want to cry in front of anybody. I don't cry. I never cried in my life. Right? And then she, the door's open, and there she is. And you watch, and the guy just falls apart. I've seen it. it happened to me. I was like, oh, 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 oh. Why is that? Well, you say, well, you know, I mean, look, she's in a beautiful dress, and she's got her hair done, and her makeup. Okay, maybe, but she's way back there, and it's kind of hard to see. I don't think that's the reason. I think it's a little simpler and much more profound. I think the reason why the dude comes undone when he sees his bride is because he says, oh my gosh, she actually showed up. Are you serious? She showed up. No way. And when she shows up at the back of the room or the garden, it's telling the whole world, I believe in that man. And I'm willing to place my safety and my future and my children and everything about me into his care. And if the whole world gives up on him, I will still believe in him. I believe he has what it takes. And I put my dress on and did my hair and my makeup and stood here proudly in front of all of you to say, that guy has got it. And he may not be able to articulate that, but that's what's happening. He's going, holy cow. Somebody thinks that about me. It's very, very powerful. And that is the strength of the feminine soul. That is the mystery of the feminine soul. She believes in him even more than he believes in himself. The female soul possesses a loyalty and an ability to recognize and affirm strength to draw out goodness and virtue in a way that nothing else can. This is why, by the way, the feminine or female soul, the woman can so often be abused because she, in her nature to trust and to persevere and to believe and to champion, she hitches herself to someone who's a monster, who's unreliable. It's tragic. And as she has continued to be abused or forgotten or neglected or cheated on, she never stops believing. And some of you have been in that situation. And it's a twisting and a marring and an abuse of how you were made. But ladies, you have this ability to do this in a way nothing else can. You inspire nobility and you bring, forth, you bring forth virtue. Of course, this is dependent upon your own character. When you live with virtue, you remind us of God's everlasting love and his mercy. 
You stir up what is best in us. But when you lack virtue and you lack confidence, when you become bitter and cynical and cold, everything falls apart in the world. This series is called X and Y, Rediscovering Manhood and Womanhood. And you said, Tim, you said men were created to bear responsibility for the world around them. And that's true. But they can't do it alone. Not without the strength and love of the other side of them. Now I have to say that this is unique to a man and a woman because they each have unique needs and only a woman can do this for a man. Only the feminine soul, the the female, the other side can provide this for a man. And so, you know, when we look at this series, part of the reason that we're doing this is because we got to, well, I want to provide clarity where there is not clarity. We have taken men and women and we have thrown the natures against the wall and laughed as they have shattered into pieces on the floor. And we've said, let's just pick up whatever pieces we want and manufacture together whatever kinds of combinations we want and the world will be all the better for it. And it's not. And so with grace in my heart and like all of the compassion I can say, I I need to tell you that a man can provide friendship and companionship to another man, but he does not by nature possess the capacity to be the other side of a man. And so there can be companionship, but there cannot be that level of intimacy because it is not fundamental to nature. And you can say that I'm a mean guy, but I'm not the one that started the fight. I'm not the one that created the confusion. I'm not the one that said this is not that or this is that and this is that and they're all the same. I didn't do that. I'm just here trying to tell the truth. And so my heart breaks for people that struggle with same-sex attraction. I can't imagine what you're going through if that's you. So hear me, my heart breaks for you. But I have to say that you can't take this story and believe it to be true and then go, oh, you could just change out the parts because it says that the woman came from the man and there's implications of that and we just have to be honest. And so to pretend that it's not there is for me to lie to you, and I won't do that. So in verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I like the translation that says, for this reason. For this reason a man shall leave his father. For what reason? For what reason? Because they, they correspond together. And so when this happens, there's this amazing thing. That there's three parts. There. There's leave and cleave and become one flesh. And it's very important. They'll leave his father and mother and, and, and hold fast, cleave, unite, and then become one flesh. So the leaving, here's the thing. Some of you are married and you never left. You didn't. You know why? Because mom calls and you're still, yes, mom, whatever you say, mom. Sure, your opinion on our family is what we're going to go by and do. Okay? You never left home. You never left home. Some of you realize you, you, you need to start a new family. Okay? What mom and dad did was great, Maybe. Okay, maybe not, maybe, but you, even if it was great, it's, yours is going to be different. You got a new person in your life. Some of you need to leave. I talked to one guy, poor soul. Say, couple sits down with me. We haven't had sex in nine months. Oh. She says, he's in love with his mother. Okay, dude, what say you? If you had to choose between your wife or your mother, which one would you choose? After five seconds of silence, 
I knew we had a problem. You don't let a millisecond pass by when you answer that question. Every mental deliberation silently in your head is not good. You never left. Secondly, it says, hold fast to his wife, otherwise known as to cleave. This is why Christians, at least the serious ones, have an issue with couples living together. We say, well, you know, it's because we're living in sin. And it's like, okay, it's technically true. I don't like to walk around and go, you're living in sin, you're living in sin, because that usually shuts down the conversation, right? People like to be told that. There's lots of ways to live in sin, by the way. But the reason that Christians have an issue with, with two people living together who aren't married is just that it's not serious. It's, it's, it's weak. It's not holding fast. You don't experience the strength of a commitment. It's we're hedging our bets. It's like, well, I like you, and we'll play married, but I'm not serious. It's counterfeit. You're not all in. It's pretend commitment. We don't need a, we don't need a piece of paper to show our love. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. In our society, the way we're socially organized, the way that we facilitate a binding agreement in our social structure is we have a society that requires you to have something that makes it clear that you, the two have become one. And that in our society is a piece of paper. If you live in a society that doesn't have paper, it would be something else. But there's something legit that says, nah, you can't just move out without some kind of problem. You cleave. You burn the ships. Cut any other contingencies. And you raise your kids in a real home with a mom and a dad who show complementary sides of the image of God. And you become one flesh. That's the fun part. Well, aren't you, don't you mean in a metaphorical sense? No. That's like flesh is in the, and that's, that's in the Bible. That is f- body, baby. So, you know, I guess if you're married, you get to have sex early and often, right? The more the better, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but hey, that's just me. We'll go into that later because I'm out of time. So there's so much more we didn't get to. Here's the deal. There was a garden in the east in Eden. We got kicked out and evicted because we deserved it, because we did what God said not to do. That's a different, that's further part of the story. And God has been chasing us down ever since. God has been chasing you down ever since. And that story then culminated in another garden, a garden called Gethsemane. So we got kicked out of Eden, and God's been chasing us down and chasing us down and chasing us down, and then there's this other garden called Gethsemane. And in that garden was a guy named Jesus who had a different response to Adam and Eve's. Rather than seeking his own will, he said, God, not my will, but yours. And in doing so, he made it possible for you and I to return to Eden. Now, we're never going to go back to the Garden of Eden. We'll go forward into heaven. But the idea is there's restoration. And if you, if this is something, and I hope, I hope, I hope some of us got under our skin a little bit, we just, we just, we played it as it lies, baby. I took my, I took my daughter to Top Golf yesterday. She was sick, and I was, wanted to get out of the house. I'm like, let's go Top Golf. Um, that's, what you, that's what you do with sick kids, right? Take them to Top Golf. And hey, play as it lies, baby. Play as it lies. That's what we did with the scripture. So if you got mad, okay. But don't blame me. Blame this. Okay. Hope you didn't get mad. Hope you got 
but I hope more than anything else you realize that there is a way back. That you have a purpose. That you have a reason. There's too many people killing themselves today because I have no reason. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? And there's a God who loves you. He wants to restore your marriage, restore your life, restore your relationships, restore you as a single person, whatever it is. He wants to give you a sense of dignity for who you are, made in the image of God, male and female. And it's beautiful. Let's pray together. God, thank you that what we can do is we can let out the sails that we can let your love blow through, that you can lead us. That wherever we are and whatever's going on in our lives, God, we can surrender to you. We can say yes, and we can begin to find our way back. God, thank you, this is nothing that we could ever do that could ever separate us from your love. As long as we have breath in our lungs, God, you are chasing us down and you are not done with us yet. Some of us, we just need to say, right now, God, I, I give you control of my life. Thank you for the beauty and the design. Thank you for the beauty of your love, what you've made. and God, I open the the sails of my heart blow through and restore what's been broken in my life. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.